Join us on this episode as we talk about the aspects of work that can enhance our mental health and well-being. And on the flip side, those things that may at times pose a risk to our well-being. Hello, welcome to the Workplace Wellbeing Natters podcast. This is a podcast that talks about wellbeing that works for the health and community services sector. I'm Linda and my pronouns are she, her. I'm a facilitator, coach and trainer specialising in workplace wellbeing. And I'm Danielle. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a wellbeing specialist and a psychology student. We would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the land of the Gunai Kurnai people and to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the demand for services currently being experienced by the sector. And this fact impacts everyone in different ways, including contributing to poor mental health and wellbeing outcomes. So we encourage you to be compassionate to yourselves and to others. In this episode, we are exploring how we can promote mentally healthy work environments, protect ours and our co-workers' mental health, and manage factors that may be a risk to our mental health and well-being. So these factors are sometimes called psychosocial risks or hazards. And this is quite a big topic, Linda, so we're covering it over two episodes. So thanks for being here for part one. In our previous episode, we chatted through definitions of mentally healthy and thriving workplaces. For those of you who tuned in, you may remember that a key part of mentally healthy workplaces are that risks to mental health and well-being are identified and managed, and that positive or supportive aspects of work which contribute to good mental health are promoted. So we know that work can be great for our health and well-being. It can be a place where we can contribute, make a positive difference in the lives of others, where we feel connected and part of a team and also a source of meaning and purpose. And so working in a supportive, well workplace can contribute to our mental well-being. These are places that have a positive climate, focus on strengths and opportunities and resources and where we can be ourselves at work and where potential risks are identified and addressed. So we mean workplaces where people are supported to be their best and do their best, where everyone cares for each other's health, safety and well-being. So Danielle, what is it that you really value about workplaces? Well, there's lots of different things. But one of the things I really like is getting to meet different people from different backgrounds who have a range of different skills and life stories that I might not have got to meet otherwise. What about you, Linda? Yeah, nice. And mine's similar. So, you know, what I really value about workplaces is having a good sense of camaraderie between workmates. And in fact, workplaces are where I've met people who, as the years have gone by, have proven to be lifelong friends. Well, coming up to 30 years or so, is that lifelong? Uh, I think you could count it as lifelong. That's, That's a good amount of time. According to WorkSafe Victoria, certain work-related experiences can negatively impact on the mental health of people in the workplace. And these exist in every industry and every job, and so no one is immune. So sometimes these are called psychological hazards or risks, or Curtin University defined them as anything in the design or management of work that increases the risk of work-related stress. And there are a range of work factors that increase the risk of stress. Some are always there and others might just happen occasionally. For instance, working shift work in a residential or acute setting might be a psychosocial hazard that's always present because it may increase fatigue. And experiencing abuse or occupational violence might be an occasional hazard. So something that just happens occasionally. 
So according to WorkSafe Australia, the work health and safety laws require workplaces to manage risks as much as is practical. So we're not going into the legal aspects here because we're not lawyers. All the risk management elements, these are things that you could get advice from, from an appropriately qualified person. We are focusing on what workplace factors contribute to a positive workplace and what factors could be harmful. And it's helpful to manage these risks, not only because it's the law, but also because if we don't appropriately manage or mitigate them, they can lead to increased stress, poor mental health, burnout, compassion fatigue, a moral injury and more. And we're going to be talking about some of these in part two of this episode. And we know workplace wellbeing is complex and there are many factors that contribute to wellbeing outcomes. For those of you who are regular listeners, you might remember in episode two, we considered a workplace wellbeing model developed by Harvey and his colleagues that focuses on the organisational context, so job design, team and group factors, as well as organisational factors, as well as then individual characteristics. So we talked about the biopsychosocial model, things in our biology, our psychology and social factors that influence our mental health. So the model proposed by Harvey considers the organisational context, the individual characteristics, and then also the relationship between them, the work-life balance or integration, some people call it. So we also talked about the biopsychosocial model, things in our biology, our psychology and social factors that influence our mental health. It's the same when we look at psychological hazards. There may be individual differences that mean some of us are more susceptible to harm from the same hazard because we all respond in different ways. And so some people who might be more vulnerable could include a new or young worker, a person with an existing disability, injury or illness, someone who's previously been exposed to a traumatic event or those of us who are currently experiencing difficult personal circumstances. So it is important to consider individual circumstances as well when we're looking at risks in our workplaces. So what are these hazards and how might they impact us, Danielle? First up, hazards will be different for each workplace and each job role, so we can't cover them all. We do have quite a list, and so we're going to go through them in three groups of organisation factors that are outlined in Harvey's model that you just mentioned a moment ago, Linda. So these three groups are job design, team group factors or workplace support, and organisational factors. And so we'll talk about what works well in promoting health and wellbeing in each of these three groups as we make our way through the list. Maybe we can start with job design. Did you want to go through that? So job design includes job demands and control, job resources, characteristics of the job or the role, and exposure to potential trauma or occupational violence. So first up is job demands. Job demands include the physical, mental, and emotional effort that's required of the role. So Here, we're really looking for that sweet spot or some people call it the Goldilocks spot, the just right. So the demands are tolerable, not too much that we burn out and not too little that we get bored, find it monotonous or repetitious and we rust out. Rust out, Linda. That's not a term that I'm super familiar with. I wonder if you could run us through what that means. So rust out is the flip side of burnout. So if we think of burnout as having too much to do, too many demands and pressures, 
then rusting out is perhaps when we feel that our skills and abilities aren't appropriately utilised, you know, we can't really give our best to the role. We not don't feel challenged in the way we like to be challenged. So we can sometimes get bored and disengage. Make perfect sense, Linda. And I'm already in my head mentally connecting that to a job experience from the past that I had, but I let's not get into that right now. <laughs> um, so some examples of job demands might include too much to do, so that time pressures or high workload due to not having enough resources, making decisions about complex and sensitive situations. So for someone who works in child protection, for example, and having to kind of make decisions around what's happening in the best interest of the child, um, that could be one example of that complex and sensitive situation. And there's that unpredictable shift rosters that, that we mentioned before, Linda, as well. And, and the emotional demands, for instance, remaining calm when someone is acting in an aggressive or angry way. And that can take a really big toll when we're trying to keep our own emotions stable and to regulate ourselves when somebody is, you know, being really angry or aggressive just to maintain and manage our own emotions as well. That emotional regulation piece can take so much energy and effort in terms of our prefrontal cortex. So related to job demands is job control. Job control is about how much of a say we have or our ability to influence what happens at work and also how we do our work. So low job control is when we have little say about the way we do it. A simple example is about when we can take breaks. Some other examples Examples of low job control are maybe when our work is really tightly managed. So you feel like you have someone looking over your shoulder, checking your work or are telling you not only what to do, but also how to do it. And it can also be about not being involved in decisions that affect you or the people you support, the clients, patients, or when we need to provide services, even though people you support might display unpredictable behaviour. So jobs that have high demands and low control are called high strain jobs. And so moving now to job resources. So job resources include the physical resources along with information and emotional resources to do the job and actively engage with the role. Having the tools, equipment and resources to do the job. In the current environment, it might be access to personal protective equipment, computers or mobile devices for case notes, as well as access to client management systems. And it could also be or include feedback about your work. So getting high quality feedback about how you're doing your job. And informational training to support your work. So for instance, if you use an electronic case note system, having training in how that system works to complete your case notes. So job demands, control and resources are all related. Let's unpack some practical strategies for managing these aspects of job design well. So in terms of job demand, Danielle? So that might be agreeing on realistic goals and timelines and providing access to the resources to achieve them. And that might mean determining priorities, what's highest on the list in terms of where to put energy and effort and setting goals that, that help us create or cultivate a sense of purpose and meaning in the work is really beneficial as well. So we want goals that motivate and inspire. So matching our strengths, abilities and attributes to the workload and tasks is also a key element. And this is where job crafting comes in. So we will be looking more at job crafting in season two. And another really valuable factor here is about creating a culture of communication where we feel able to talk to supervisors when we feel workload pressures, 
And that goes both ways. So when we're feeling overloaded or when we're feeling underloaded. And so that's that rust out that we were talking about before. Mm. And having a monitoring process and the ability to check in both informally as well as through formal processes like regular supervision. And so if we think about working from home, the very nature of working from home enables more job control. So bearing in mind the scheduling of meetings, etc. And so each role or task will have differing levels of flexibility with job control. So for instance, if you're working in a frontline role in a residential setting, in a client's home or on a ward, there are certain constraints imposed by the nature of the work and the settings. So Linda, if we're doing job control well, what might that look like or what might that include? Being able to self-manage our workload and feeling able to raise challenges and concerns safely. So this includes being able to discuss aspects of the role that might cause conflict, especially if it's conflict between our personal beliefs and also the professional demands of the role. It's also about having a say in how we do our work, when we take breaks, as much as possible, of course, not always possible. Sometimes, though, it's really the little things that can make a big difference. So if you are in a supervisory role, don't assume, find out what's important to each person. There's a good saying around assume, but I won't get into that now. <laughs> um, another thing it might look like is having flexibility with work arrangements. So where we can, giving people the ability to work in a way that's kind of meaningful for them and suits kind of what they've got going on in their lives outside of work as well. And also involving others in aspects of work that affect them and making decisions as early as you can and communicating them in a way that makes sense for the individual. And I just really want to touch on the communicating part there. It's important to communicate firstly. Um, sometimes we forget to do that. We forget to people know, let people know that decisions have been made and that can lead to really stressful situations. So we don't want, just want to communicate. We want to communicate in a way that makes sense for everybody as well. So moving on to job resources, some strategies around that could include ensuring physical resources to do the job, along with appropriate training, clear information about the tasks at hand, as well as making an effort to notice achievements and to thank people involved for a job well done. So it's important, of course, to tailor this to the person in the situation for example, someone who is new to a role might benefit from more frequent recognition than a person who's been in the same role for years. And of course, we all have our individual preferences. So for me, I know lots of people enjoy being in the spotlight. They like to be front and center and to be acknowledged and recognized by people involved. For me, it looks more like, you know, a quiet cup of green tea and, a, you know, that was great. Thanks. How about you, Danielle? Yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not a big fan um, personally of standing in front of a lot of people. I find that quite overwhelming. So for me, it might be quite one-on-one or in a smaller group, just acknowledging the input that I've made, but also, you know, what other people have had as well. I like to kind of be part of a collective so that I don't feel like the spotlight is on myself too much. But I think it's really important to do that in a timely way so that the person is recognised at an appropriate time and also look at getting feedback from other people as well, whether that be patients or clients also can be really helpful and really valuable for each of us. And I like what you said about the collective as well, because it's not always about the individual either. Celebrating shared team and organisational accomplishments is important too, as it makes sure everyone's rewarded for their part in the achievement. 
This includes recognising and rewarding those who acknowledge, support and encourage others as well. So it's not all about the task. It's about recognising and rewarding our actions to promote the values of our workplace too. So we want to be acknowledging and rewarding actions that are in line with our workplace values. And so job characteristics is the next thing on our list to talk about. And so job characteristics include the variety of tasks, the ability to see a task through and finding meaning in work and being physically safe and having job security and supportive supervision. So there's a bit in that. One of the things could be being on short-term contract to short-term contract, as well as having to compete with others for positions. So feeling like you always have to do more so that you will be chosen over others for upcoming roles. Another example could be doing the same task over and over again. So something that's very repetitious without any variety or being really kind of distanced from the outcomes of what you're doing. Going back to that short-term contract to short-term contract, I definitely can relate to that. I had a role a number of years ago now and I was there for about two years, but that was always on contract to contract. And so it was always present in my mind that what if they don't extend my contract? What's going to happen then? Or the knowledge that they could cancel my contract at any time if they wanted to. And so it was really quite stressful not kind of having that security around what might happen. Another kind of similar thing is role clarity. So role clarity comes under job characteristics as well. And that's really about having a clear understanding about what our work role involves, what our tasks are, our responsibilities, the processes that we need to follow, as well as who our leader is. So there's a couple of things that can impact that. And one of them is high staff turnover, as well as a changing environment. So for instance, COVID-19, you know, um, things are changing all the time. Some people suggest that clarity is even more important during times of uncertainty and high change as well. Yeah, so that low role clarity can include uncertainty about how or, or what you do or frequent changes to tasks and work standards. And it can include not having the information that you need to do your job. It might also be conflict about your role or responsibilities. So for example, You've got one manager who tells you to focus on one task or to do something in a certain way, and then you're told by another manager to do it in a different way. Another source of low role clarity can be confusion about the roles of different workers, especially across different health disciplines. So for instance, if you're working in a multidisciplinary team, and I think it's really important here that once you've clarified the roles and agreed Um, So there's an element of negotiation, agreement and communication that you then stick to your lane. You know, you stick to what it is that you've been tasked to do. And I was just sharing an example earlier on. So if you imagine you've got like a six lane swimming pool and your role is to stay in lane one. So I've certainly had examples in my working life where the person, instead of sticking to their lane, lane one, they've crossed all of the six, you know, swimming lanes and they're paddling about in the baby pool next door. It's just not helpful for anyone. Really interesting, Linda. And I know we haven't spoken much about job crafting yet, but I'm wondering how staying in your lane kind of goes along with job crafting. Yeah, good point, Danielle. So I think the key here is the communication aspect, the communication and the negotiation. So we know that job crafting is really helpful in terms of, you know, engagement and well-being in the workplace. 
So certainly advocate for that and negotiating that with relevant team members, your manager and others is also essential to ensure that you're still covering off all of the duties and tasks and hopefully doing it in a way where everyone feels that they can make their best contribution. So if we think about ways to promote supportive environments in relation to job characteristics, this might look like providing as much certainty as you can, especially with tenure or roles and having detailed job descriptions. So try to limit other duties. Uh, I know I've had uh, a lot of roles where the majority of my tasks have been other duties. And Linda, I'm not sure if you've seen the Rob Baker, I think it is. His company is Tailored Thinking. He's recently put out a job canvas. And I really like the way that he's set that out because he focuses on core values, key partners, key activities, key resources. So he covers off a lot of these kind of job design elements. So it's really worth checking that one out. Another one that's perhaps more simpler is the Donut, which is a tool that was developed by the Learning Community for Person-Centered Practices. And that kind of enables you to do some reflection and thinking about what's in the scope of your role, what's clearly outside the scope of the role. So the middle of the donut is what's uh, your scope, your role or sticking to your lane. The outside of the donut is the things that are outside of your scope. And then the middle bit, so the donut itself is really where you have the wriggle room to use your creativity and judgment. And that can be just a really simple kind of useful tool to think about and to do that negotiation around where you can use creativity and judgment and what are the kind of no-go zones as well. And so another way around promoting supportive environments is to end meetings or conversations with a recap of what was discussed or agreed upon and asking others to clarify and feedback what they heard as well. So it's about checking in with one another to make sure that you're on the same page. And I think, you know, many of us are familiar with the Ask Me Three framework. So the Ask Me Three framework promotes health literacy by encouraging patients to ask three specific questions of their healthcare provider. And that's to better understand their health conditions and what they need to do to stay healthy. So I think these could also be relevant for role clarity. Well, kind of at least two of the three questions, we might tailor the first one. So the questions are, what is my main problem? What do I need to do? And why is it important for me to do this? So if we think about this in a role clarity context, maybe the first question becomes, you know, where's my point of focus or what do we agree on? And then the second two questions, what do I need to do and why is it important for me to do this? I think really adds value because it's ensuring we all have a clear understanding of not only what we're doing, but why we're doing it as well. So it links into that sense of kind of meaning and purpose as well. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about is remote or isolated work. And so this is when we work at locations where access to resources and communications is difficult or maybe where we travel long distances. And probably the most relevant example for many at the moment is working from home, especially if you have a poor internet or mobile phone connection, it can feel really isolating. And if you keep dropping out of virtual meetings or the phone reception dies, for example. And I think another part of that as well, Linda, is just the isolation or lack of connection to other people that you might have when you're working at home. So the maybe a sense of lack of connection. If you're used to an office environment and now you're working from home and you're missing that incidental contact. 
So some other examples are working one-on-one in the community, whether as a disability support person or a community nurse or aged care worker or even a local laws person. And it might be doing a sleepover or night shift when you're the only person on duty. So that mightn't be remote because you're still kind of in the workplace, but it can be isolating if you're the only one there needing to make decisions and carry things through. And of course, in regional or rural areas, delivering a service might mean driving a long distance. So for instance, if you're providing services from a bush nursing centre. Some strategies that we can try to assist here is, like you've mentioned a few times now, having that really clear and strong communication with others, having an on-call person, someone that you can talk to when you need to, and putting strategies in place where have a check-in or a check-out and maybe someone to talk to or to check in with when you get back from traveling, particularly if you are, you know, doing those longer distances. I love that. And part of our mission is to include the voices of the sector in our podcast as well. So Brad Campbell is the CEO of From Your Own Way, and he's going to be talking about exactly that. So let's listen to what he's got to say. Hello, Danielle and Linda, and thanks for having me. Home and community healthcare is one of the hardest roles you could choose to embark on. Working independently in the community, often isolated from your organisation for multiple days of the week, from case managers right through to direct care support staff. Communication between staff and the office and the initial client set up helps reduce workplace anxiety, helps keep the staff connected and up to date with what to expect and be expected from, from the first shift to the last rostered shift, giving the staff a chance to follow up and plan for the day ahead. This is where a user-friendly system for communication is important. To streamline live information and to have it accessible and available in real time. Community health workers are in it for the outcome. This is the most rewarding part of doing the job. Be it assisting clients to simply get out of the bed and start the day, to helping them gain their driver's licence, find or start employment, assisting to build capacities to provide a healthy environment for their families, or just simply to navigate the stress of everyday living. It's important as an organisation that you celebrate the wins and you celebrate the wins often. In team meetings, care plan meetings, staff newsletters, or in our case, a combination of all three and the introduction of the CEO monthly check-in video with updates of where the business is at, where we are heading and recognition of the team achievements. And we've also heard from Karen as well. So Karen has listed some positives as well as some negatives that she's experienced during her career as a nurse. So over to Karen now. I've been working in the community in various settings in Australia and New Zealand since 2008. My current workplace is a small organisation contracted as part of the COVID response in New Zealand. Aspects of my current job that uh, negatively affect health and well-being are things like inadequate communication from management. For instance, every day we're told something different. There's part-timers, so not everybody gets the same information and it causes confusion and tension. Lack of recognition for previous experience, and this manifests in people stating the obvious or occasionally having clinical judgments overridden in low-state situations, and this can come over as a power play. Inconsistent application of um, stated values from management is a big one, and also occasionally health and safety concerns are not taken seriously. 
for instance, a badly ventilated tea room. Having to put time and energy into correcting payroll errors made by others that affect our pay makes you feel that you're not valued. Aspects of my workplace which promote health and wellbeing include the ability for us to get our physical needs met, i.e. we get a break when required, we feel safe, we've got approachable and competent security staff, I know that I'm making a meaningful contribution, I have a degree of autonomy, I enjoy the intellectual stimulation and learning opportunities, and of course the fact that I have supportive and friendly colleagues. That makes a huge difference. Thank you to both Karen and Brad for your contributions. And we can hear some factors that we've discussed that relate to job design, as well as team, group and organisational factors that we'll be looking at in part two. And we can also hear that the wellbeing focus is different depending on the role and the discipline. So also included in job characteristics is potentially traumatic events. So exposure to potentially traumatic events can be a hazard And we call them potentially traumatic incidents as we all differ in our response to situations and events. So what might have little impact on me, you might find really distressing or vice versa. And a potentially traumatic event involves witnessing or experiencing actual or threatened death or significant threat to our physical or psychological safety and can include violence, aggression, physical or sexual assault, or someone being seriously ill or injured. And it might be something that we're involved with directly or we might just kind of hear about it or see it happen, which can be vicarious trauma. I was in a role a few years ago now facilitating some training around responding to abuse. And as part of that facilitation role, it really involved people talking about, you know, their experiences. And I actually think that I had some vicarious trauma as a result of that. And I was really lucky, even though I was working as a consultant or a contractor, I was working with a great organisation and they enabled me to access their EAP, their Employee Assistance Program, which I found really helpful at the time. And it really made me feel included and valued by the organisation. And if we go back to thinking about, you know, we shared the super friend definition of thriving workplaces in one of our previous episodes, and their definition includes not only workers in the workplace, but also external to it as well. So contractors. Alongside potential trauma is occupational violence. And occupational violence is when someone is assaulted, threatened or abused in a situation involving their work. And this could be from colleagues, clients or members of the public. And it can include things like yelling, swearing, name calling, spitting or hitting and threats or actual physical or sexual assault. And unfortunately, occupational violence is too common in health and community services. So some research suggests that over a 12-month period, more than 65% of health professionals report experiencing violence. And uh, I think there's a a lot of underreporting going on there as well. So the actual figures of that are, are quite likely to be much higher than that 65%. So some strategies linked to this could be around having good policies and processes to minimise the risk of potential trauma and violence. And it might also include things like having a supportive debriefing um, or additional supports, like you mentioned before, Linda, in employee assistance programs. Uh, It could also involve educating your staff on mental health awareness through mental health first aid or having mental health first aid officers. And you're the expert 
uh, when it comes to that, Linda. So I might throw that over to you for comment. Thanks, Danielle. Not sure about expert, but as a mental health first aid trainer, I think it's really important. It provides leaders, particularly with some information around, you know, how to create an environment that destigmatizes um, mental health. It also teaches everyone in the workplace how to identify perhaps if someone's not traveling well or might be experiencing a mental health problem. And also then what to do in terms of how to approach someone or what to think about and also how to provide that initial support. It's also about connecting people or encouraging them to connect with professional and other supports as well. I've done mental health first aid. I've done it with you, Linda, as, as one of my courses. And one of the other things that I really liked about it was it's around that ment- raising awareness of mental health. And I think too often in the workplace, people might see someone's performance drop or dip and automatically kind of go to performance management without kind of looking into what might be actually happening for that person or what might be going on. And so that's where I think the value of mental health first aid comes in. It gets people looking for what might be going on, but also comfortable to ask those questions as well. Some other strategies, Linda, sorry, got a little sidetrack there, um, is psychological first aid, which is different to mental health first aid and is about providing support immediately after a crisis. There's also things like peer support programs as alternatives that workplaces could offer support as well. It might be about including wellbeing as part of regular supervision, which is incredibly important and valuable, and having wellbeing as part of induction programs as well. So it's the first thing, one of the first things people hear about when they join your organisation or your workplace is to know that wellbeing is valued. And I think we need to underscore the uh, significance of feeling safe in a workplace. If we reflect back to what Karen was saying in relation to the things that she really valued, she spoke about feeling safe and also having approachable and competent security staff as well. So the physical safety element as well as the psychosocial safety element. So that wraps up the job design factors, Danielle, and part one of this episode. So let's do a quick recap. So today we introduced the concept of psychosocial hazards or risks and also positive and supportive workplaces. We looked at the group of job design, which includes job demands, job control, resources, job characteristics, which also includes exposure to potential trauma and occupational violence. So we've also looked at what could be some strategies around promoting a positive work environment. But again, just to reinforce what we said earlier on, you know, there are many, many things that contribute to wellbeing outcomes within workplaces. And of course, these are just a few. In part two of this episode, we will be going through some evidence-based strategies that you can use as well. So as always, Danielle, we've covered a lot today. We have, and we would like to invite you, our listeners, to reflect on on aspects of job design that you might want to tweak or you might do differently to reduce risks and promote a positive work environment. We have so loved connecting with you and sharing insights into some of the mental health risks and protective factors in workplaces. And of course, in our show notes, we will have any links that may support your journey towards workplace wellbeing. We want to know what you think, have been inspired by, or any questions you would like answered, or if you want to make any contributions to the podcast. So please leave a review 
or contact us via matters at workplacewellbeingmatters.com.au. And if you'd like to explore how we can help you on your journey, submit a case study or comment to include in our podcast. So we look forward to you joining us for part two, when we'll be discussing risk and protective elements for the team group factors, as well as organisational factors and strategies to promote a safe and healthy workplace. Thanks for being here. Bye for now. Bye for now.